Simply Complex is brought to you by Studio 71 and the YouTube channel, How to Make Everything. In today's episode, we talk with Andy about how he does his research when he recreates everyday items completely from scratch. We explore the history of libraries and the evolution of the role of librarian. We also talk to a real life librarian and learn how librarians are impacting our communities today. Thanks for listening. I'm Taylor. And I'm Andy. Welcome to Simply Complex. In today's modern world, we are always in such a hurry. We rarely stop to think about the things that keep the gears turning. On Simply Complex, we explore the people, technologies, items, and processes that, while at one point were considered outstanding, have today become so commonplace, we take them for granted. While some of us remember the days we spent locked in the library taking notes by hand, losing bookmarks, and digging through our Mary Poppins level backpacks to find the proper highlighter, we often take for granted how easy it is to find information that is both credible and the fun stuff that's not so credible. For how to make everything, Andy spends a lot of time researching and sorting through a mountain of data to attempt these projects. Last year, we were all out on a trip in California and driving to our next location and had a couple hours to kill in the car. Andy, I remember you were reading this super thick book, balancing a notebook and taking notes by hand and finding similar articles on your phones and trying to enter them in Google Sheets all at the same time. Do you find there are certain subjects that require more research than others? Anything that is more modern and was kind of a process produced in the last hundred years or so usually is very complex and requires a lot of research. Things that have been around for a long time, like clothing, a lot of food items, are pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to find information on that. But like making shampoo or different detergents or some forms of cosmetics, which I think is what I was researching on that drive, those can be pretty complex and can involve a lot of breaking things down piece by piece. And I think that's what I was doing was finding one answer in the book, then Googling how do, how do you make this piece of it from scratch, because the book didn't cover that. So then I find out an article and kind of put together what's possible to actually make. Where do you usually find your information these days? Do you own any, like, encyclopedias? How do you keep track of the information that you find? And do you organize it a particular way? Uh, I mean, the Internet is definitely the main source. Usually start with Wikipedia and just, like, look up whatever item I want to make. And uh, I usually have some sort of rough breakdown of the production of a certain thing, and you can just click on how do you make that ingredient, and then how do you make the components to make that ingredient, and sometimes it's a really long trail of breadcrumbs just to, like, how did I get here? So Internet's usually step one, and then um, sometimes it doesn't have enough. Just Wikipedia itself usually doesn't have enough. to either find specific niche websites related to that topic, or sometimes I do have to find a book that uh, has more information. Can you imagine having to do all of that research through a library without the internet? Uh, that would definitely be a huge pain. As I think the biggest thing with the internet is that I don't have to read an entire book or skim through it. I can just search for the keywords and then jump right to the section I want. And that's kind of why I moved away. In the beginning, I did a lot of my research by going to the library and getting books. And usually I just want to know one specific thing. And it's hard to like find that in a book. So when you're able to just Google it, get right to the keyword, it's so much easier. Do you know how libraries came to be? Uh, well, actually, I have the answer, <laughs> thanks to the internet.
libraries are often considered an essential part of having an educated and literate population. But when did they first come about? The earliest records of a library institution can be dated back to around 5,000 years ago in Southwest Asia. One of the oldest libraries found to date is that of the ancient library at Elba, circa 2500 BCE in present-day Syria. The Greek government was the first to sponsor public libraries. By 500 BCE, both Athens and Samos had begun creating libraries for the public. Though as most of the population was illiterate, these spaces were serving a small, educated portion of the population. The library at Alexandria, Egypt, was one of the largest and most significant libraries of the ancient world. The library included a museum, garden, meeting areas, and of course, reading rooms. It wasn't until the Middle Ages that libraries started to become a part of culture. During the Renaissance era, more people became educated and relied on libraries as a place to study and gain knowledge. The 17th and 18th centuries include what is known as the Golden Age of Libraries. During this time, many of the major European libraries were founded. These libraries were becoming increasingly public and became more frequently lending libraries. Before this time, public libraries wouldn't let you check out books and would use a lectern system where they would chain the books to desks or shelves. In the newly formed United States, James Madison proposed instituting a congressional library in 1783. The Library of Congress was established on the 24th of April in 1800 when President John Adams signed an act of Congress providing for the transfer of the seat of government from Philadelphia to the new capital city of Washington. Part of the legislation proposed $5,000 for the purchase of such books as may be necessary for the use of Congress and for fitting up a suitable apartment for containing them. The first tax-supported public library in the United States was opened in 1833 in Peterborough, New Hampshire. During the post-Civil War years, there was a rise in the establishment of public libraries, a movement led chiefly by newly formed women's clubs. They contributed their own collection of books, conducting lengthy fundraising campaigns for buildings, and lobbied within their communities for financial support for libraries. They led to the establishment of 75-80% to 80 of the libraries in communities across the country. In the 21st century, libraries are changing and evolving to match modern society. But the key to making all of this work is the librarian. The librarian is a person who works professionally in a library, providing access to information and sometimes social or technical programming. Their history closely follows the history of the library itself. The Sumerians were the first to train clerks to keep records of accounts. Masters of the books or keepers of the tablets were scribes or priests who trained to handle the vast amount and complexity of these records. The librarians of the Great Library in Alexandria were scholars in their own right and were considered the custodians of learning. And in the Middle Ages, Within the monasteries, the role of the librarian was often filled by an overseer of the scriptorium, where the monks would copy out books cover to cover. While there were full-time librarians in the 18th century, the professionalization of the library role was a 19th century development. By 1920, women and men were equally numerous in the library profession, but women pulled ahead by the 1930s and comprised 80% by 1960. Our friend Daniel helped us a ton with research on this episode. Daniel got involved at the very beginning in How to Make Everything when he helped Andy finish up the original Making a Sandwich from Scratch documentary. So before he shared all this information about libraries that we just learned, Daniel got Chris, Andy, Brian, myself all together on Skype, and we had a conversation about what we actually knew about libraries. The reason we use Skype is because Daniel's in the Milwaukee area, and we're in Minneapolis. Ready, Andy? Let's go talk to the guys. All right.
All right. Well, I have some questions for you guys. When's the last time you have gone to a library? Library? Probably a year or two ago. I, I needed to print something. Okay. So this is a question for everybody, and we're going to see who can guess closest without going over. Okay. Who can guess how many public libraries are in the United States right now? Uh, <clears throat> guess it's pretty high. Right. Pretty much every small town has a library. Yeah. I'm going to say 10 million. 10 million. 10 million. <laughs> okay. I like in, that. In the country, right? Wait, how many people are there in America? 250 million or something? I think it's like 350 now. 350? Oh. It's, that's a bit high. I'll All right. just say that. That's a bit high. So oh, wait, wait, let's make a deal. So like, I'll, I will say 4,999,000. And I'll say $1. <laughs> I'm going to guess low. I'm going to guess... 66,000. Wow. You all were crazy high, except Chris, who was kind of low, but it was 119,487. Whoa. Chris wins. So did you find that out on the internet? Or did you go to a Yeah, so that's according to the American Library Association. So that is official. So the library's website. (laughs) Yes. I feel like that might be So that's legit. Yeah. Right. Okay. It also I didn't I didn't go count them myself. <laughs> okay. I ran out of time. So then how much money do you guys think libraries make from fines? Can we say like per, by like a percentage of their total revenue or does it have to be a hard yeah. number? Yeah, yeah, let's say per month, what percentage of the revenue do you think comes from fines? 10%? I was going to say it's I think it's over 50%. I mean, I I have a feeling 60%. I'll go with I'll go with 30%. It depends on the size of the city, obviously. But a survey by the Library Journal found that small town libraries in towns with 25,000 or less population, they collect on average about $449 from fines a month. A mid-sized library from a town of 25,000 to 99,000 collect about $2,691 on average per month. And then large city libraries, cities with over 100,000 population, collect on average $9,788 per month. That is not nearly as much as I thought it was. Yeah, that's pretty low. So the other revenue is obviously like taxes in some form. Is there any other alternative revenue for libraries these days? They'll do fundraising and that sort of thing, but it's mostly tax money. Crazy. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I always assumed they were just taxpayer funded. All right, so then who can guess the world's largest fine for an overdue library book? Closest without going over. That was actually paid? Actually paid, yes. Oh. I feel like they usually cap out at the price of the book, and they just let you buy it. But that might not have always been true. Or I'm going to say $100. Going off the book purchase price, maybe if it was like a textbook, it could be $101. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> or like 150 maybe? I'll say like $1,800. Okay. The answer was $345.14. It was a book of poetry that was 47 years overdue. And at two cents per day, it had added up to $345.14. It was from a public library in Illinois, and the book was returned, and they wrote a check for the fine. (laughs) That is a good citizen. Yeah, that is a very good citizen. All right. So then do you guys think that libraries will be around 30 years from now? Why or why not? I think they'll probably be in a very different form by then, but the same basic functions will be provided by them. 
how long? Wait, because the internet's been around like in a publicly consumed way since what ninety five or ninety four? I mean, it yeah, was, it was around earlier than that. But yeah, that's when it came since online. For- AOL, but I- it, there's been enough time to go by for I think if if libraries were to become extinct, they probably would have at this point. Mm-hmm. So I think I mean from what I understand, I think that they've already partially morphed into what they will become. And but I, I agree, I think they'll probably stay but they'll become more of gathering places, you know, and and places for, you know, public space as opposed to, and a repository for information as as opposed to a place you go to research. Do you guys think that there's any possible knockout technology or business model that might come along that could get rid of libraries, like the Netflix to Blockbuster? The library killer? The library killer. If there is a way for us to access libraries and books with our brains without going anywhere or logging on to yeah. anything. Maybe the uh, library killer would be like a virtual library. Kind of like in uh, Ready Player One, where it's like you could just put on a headset and go into a virtual library. There'd be no need to go into a real library then. I feel like Wikipedia is kind of the closest to library killer and like even that isn't completely killing it. Right. So, I have a hard time imagining anything that would be even more of a killer than a free encyclopedia with all the knowledge pretty much of the world. All right. So then what do you guys think of when I say librarian? Glasses with chains. I think of that like the lady in Monsters, Inc. So that's like, especially when you just said chains, but like, yeah, glasses, like hair, probably in a ponytail, some patterned shirt looking over the desk like hello do you guys think everybody working at a th- library is a librarian uh, there i think there has to be somebody else i don't know what they do though so i had thought that everybody that was working at a library would be considered a librarian so i went to my local library germantown community library in wisconsin and i went up to the front desk and i talked to the lady working there and I asked, is there a librarian that'd be willing to do an interview for our podcast? And I thought she would be like, oh, yeah, which one do you want to pick? But she said that they only had one librarian on staff. And so I thought that was interesting. So I got to sit down and talk with Trisha Smith. And she was the director of the Germantown Library and the person that was actually a librarian. And I asked her what goes on behind the scenes at a library. We'll be back right after this with Daniel and Trisha Smith. My name is Trisha Smith. I am the director of the Germantown Community Library in Germantown, Wisconsin. I've been in this current position for about two years. Um, Prior to that, I was at the library for about a year before taking over as the director. I worked as um, an adult service librarian doing reference assistance, cataloging. Um, I was also a director in La Myra previous to that. At what point in your life did you decide that you wanted to become a librarian and why? Why did that interest you? I decided when I was about 23 um, after I had gone to school to be a music teacher. I had always worked in libraries. I actually worked at the Germantown Library in high school for a couple of years. So I've always uh, had a love for libraries. And when I was in high school and college, I didn't really understand quite the, the structure of, of what libraries do. You typically see the 
front end staff at the circulation desk and think that they're librarians. And I'm like, well, I don't exactly want to do that for the rest of my life. But as I started working in libraries, I learned more and more about what they actually do and how how big of a um, a job it is. And um, I just I've always loved libraries. I was the the kid, uh, seven years old, and wanting to go to the library instead of Chuck E. Cheese. And I would come home with these gigantic stacks of books. And um, I just I love I loved reading first of all, but I also just really loved the atmosphere that libraries had. And it's just, it's such a cool thing that you can go to a place and have all these books for free. And now we have so much more than just books. And as libraries have evolved, there's just so much more to offer. And once I started working in libraries, I just started liking that more and more. Um, And I, it's just a really natural fit. I I love helping people find what they need. I think that's just a really cool thing that, that we get to do. And there's so many different needs for libraries nowadays that not everybody is aware of. So I'm always the one telling my friends and family how great libraries are and how it fits into every part of their life. And they get a little, okay, whatever. But I think it's so important for people to know about libraries. One of the additional questions that they had asked me is, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of positions talk about starting at the bottom and working your way up, yeah. like starting in yeah. the mail room or whatever. Yep, yep. Is there an equivalent to that in the library? Do you have to work your yeah, way up to get absolutely. to the position you are now? Um, I mean, for me, I very much started at the bottom. I was a shelled books, and that was pretty much bottom of the totem pole. And most libraries have a very similar career path. They recommend like um, information technology paths. And if you're going into children's education is a very common field. So there's some recommendations, but there's not a true like bachelor's degree. So it is very common um, to start that career path later in life. And there's a lot of people that start working in libraries and then go to grad school after because you don't need a master's degree for a lot of the positions. So um, when I started school, I was actually one of the youngest people. But you don't have to necessarily work your way up. Uh, the, the unique thing with getting your master's degree is you come out of school with your master's and then you try to find a job. So I think it has helped me immensely where I am in my career. I'm at a younger age that I did work my way up. So when I came out with my master's degree, I had 10 years of experience working in libraries, which is very hard to do unless you start pretty young. So for you, how much of what you're doing day to day and a part of your job do you think you learned from schooling and how much did you learn from experience? (laughs) I think schooling is very beneficial for being a director in, uh, we're considered a grade one library. So that's based on population. If you're City is over 6,000 people. Legally, I have to have my master's to be a director. In the Myra, that wasn't the case because they had about 2,500 people. So I was able to be the director there without... I was in school, but I hadn't got my master's yet. So really, um, it depends on the, the population size. But most of the stuff I've learned is from my work experience. Schooling gives you that that background, but it's it's, it's the same thing with teaching. You can read a textbook all day long, but to learn how to teach, you actually have to teach. And same thing about being a librarian, you actually have to work with people and be in a library and see all the structure and the management that goes behind it. And so it was very beneficial to go to school, but then uh, really getting that work experience was key. Yeah. So if someone who's starting on the bottom, if they have the yeah. dream to be at the top yeah. of the library world, <laughs> yeah. what is, do you know, is it being a, a head of a library in a major city? Like what, what in your field do you think is kind of those like, enviable, like that's the top position. You know, it really, it really depends. Director is the top position in your library, but that's, it's not for everybody. 
I went to school to be a librarian and I loved cataloging, which is assigning books so people can find them and ordering books and planning programs and working at the reference desk and all the things that librarians do. And in my job now, I don't do as much of that as I used to. So it really depends on what path you want to take. If you love working with children, your top position is going to be head of a children's department, not necessarily a director. There's lots of different kinds of libraries. There's huge academic libraries, but those are very different than than public libraries. So I always uh, wanted to end up back in public libraries because I just, I love working with the public. But technically, the tippity top of it is librarian at the Library of Congress and, you know, head of all those things. But the more you get to the top, the less librarian things you're doing and the more administration you get. So it's kind of a balance for people of what you want to do and where you see yourself. It's a somewhat unique field because there's not every place has a librarian. You know, there are a lot of business um, jobs that have bigger businesses that have a librarian and law librarians and different things. So there's a lot of variety and it just kind of depends on where, where you see your focus. Okay, so to you, then what's the most rewarding part of your job? Really the most rewarding part is working with people and being able to add things to, to people's lives, whether that's your story time for the younger kids or helping somebody find a book or apply for a job. And then we do so many different things um, with lifelong learning and just adding quality to people's lives um, is just a really, really neat thing to do. And it's, it's so exciting when we have a successful program or something, you know, a new collection that we, that got a lot of interest and seeing people come in specifically for those things is really neat. So then what's the most, what part of the job challenges you the most? The most challenging thing is just keeping up with everything. With added technology, we have to keep up with all of that. 20 years ago, you came to the library to check out a book or to read the newspaper. And nowadays there's so much more that we have to offer and we, we're adding programming and all the technology assistance. And now not only do we have books, but we have electronic books and electronic magazines and DVDs and free online courses. And we just have so much more to offer nowadays and so much more that's expected. And the biggest challenge is balancing all that. We still need to get our books out and we still need to order the right material, but we also have to do all these other things. And we also have to go to the schools and participate in community events and be part of the village and the county. And there's just so many things we can do. So just figuring out realistically how much we can take on. What are some character traits and skill sets that you think are needed to be a good librarian? That sense of... Not necessarily being organized, but that sense of wanting some sort of organization and some sort of accessing material and really the the core value of understanding the importance of accessing material and information and learning. Everything what we do is is serving, you know, our, our main goal is to serve the public. So you're you're constantly working with people. And if you if you don't like working with people, it's not <laughs> not a good right. not a good fit. Um, and just liking what I do is is I think a really important character trait and understanding the importance of libraries because we are um, you know constantly fighting the you know there's it's always hard to get enough funding and get enough resources and things. And as technology changes, there's always people that are going to say, well, we don't need libraries anymore. And we very much do. We just need them in different ways. People might not be checking out books like they used to, but they're coming in for programming. And we have morphed into navigating information and helping people access it, not just 
having it. That's really good. That's awesome. All right. So then I, I out of that, what you just said earlier, I do have another question. <laughs> okay. So you're a, bit, a little bit younger. You're a younger librarian. When I mm-hmm. picture librarians, I think of, you know, maybe right? a little bit older. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder, have you seen a cultural shift in librarians? Do you know maybe older librarians mm-hmm. that weren't willing to make the shift? Like you have been talking about, about yep. adapting technology. Yep. Was there kind of a changing of the guard in the librarian world? You know, I think it happened before I got into this um, where... Younger people going into library school, you're you're doing the technology and everything's just different. You know, you used to sit down and fill out card catalogs right. for every book and now we have these automated systems and they're running a website. That's something I, I didn't know I would have to do. Um, but there's there's just a lot of preconceived notions. I think there are obviously older librarians, but there's also a lot of you know younger librarians coming in and doing different types of work. When you think a librarian, you think of a typically older older lady with the, the glasses and the librarian outfit and shushing people at the library. And that's absolutely not what we do whatsoever. But when you see librarians today, they're out and about in the community and they're doing programming or working at a business center or at a university library. As that shift has taken place, there's hopefully more acceptance towards the profession. And with that more people are seeing it as a, a career. It's not just the, the whittled old lady who, you know, is checking out books. There's so much more that would offer younger people in career paths and so many different types of careers that you can take. There's a lot of people I know that went to library school that aren't even working in libraries. They're doing information technology and using those skills in other other areas. So when you tell people that you work at a library, what do people usually say or do? Is you there know, any jokes? Or? There are. There's always lots of jokes. And um, I, I get them all the time from from everybody. I mean, it's, it's usually one of two things. Either they love libraries and they think that'd be a really nice kind of cozy job and I just get to sit and hang out and read books and I... Very rarely get to do any of that. Usually my to-read pile just continues to grow because I don't have time to read them. Or, you know, you get the, oh, I didn't know they had libraries anymore. And I get that a lot, actually. Um, Even in in Germantown, when I moved back to the area, there was a lot of people who were like, oh, we have a library? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So my biggest goal right now and my big focus is to make sure that people know we're here and why we're here. And not only that they know we have a library, but know all the great things we have to offer and all the programs and opportunities and material and that they get out of that um, preconceived notion. So when people make jokes about it. I use that as a learning opportunity to tell them about all the great things we have and try to get them to to come into the library and, and use our take advantage of our resources. So with the rise of Google, YouTube, and Wikipedia, and the ability to access information easily via the internet, uh, what have libraries had to do to adapt? And you mentioned earlier that, yep. you know... Everybody can access that information now, mm-hmm. but what yep. what do you guys do different? How do you guys connect people to information yep. better than yep. the internet? Um, one of the big things we really try to advocate is understanding that a majority of people do have access to the internet and access to you know Google and Wikipedia and all those sources, but that's not always the case. It's been... Um, an interesting, interesting conversations with staff to, because, you know, why do they come to the library to use the internet? They have it at home. It's like, you don't know that they have it at home. They they might not have it at home for whatever reason, whether that's a personal choice or financial reasons, or there's a lot of, up north, especially in Wisconsin, we have a lot of communities where you literally can't get wireless access and you can't um, 
doesn't matter how much money you have, you, you can't use those resources. So definitely training staff and training the community that, that we have those available. There's so, like I said before, there's so much out there that people need assistance navigating those things. We have a, a lot of variety of, we do our electronic databases and our print material and our, when I'm helping patrons find what they need, I use Google all the time. And it's not that I end there. I use it very much as like a starting off point and to verify certain things. And then using that information, I can go use those more academic type sources. Um, so definitely uh, we've had a, a switch from teaching our staff not just how to use your print reference books. We have to teach them how to navigate the internet and navigate resources and um, be able to answer people's questions. We get a lot of um, kind of phone book questions where people call us up and ask us for phone numbers and addresses. And I, I wasn't expecting that because I just assumed people, you know, everybody has a cell phone, but that that's not the case. And um, we, we do serve as... Um, there's not that many phone books anymore and there's not phone booths. And, you know, we kind of have, have taken over some of those unique niche um, information sources. And, and uh, the nice thing is people think to call us, which is so great. Um, and we get a lot of uh, questions about just what's going on in the village. And um, so it's very much teaching staff to know how to access all of those things and know where to look. Um, and understanding the the wide variety of resources available and what what type of resources works best with with different types of questions. So it's it, get, it gets it changes every day. Um, so a lot of what I learned in grad school and a lot of my professors were very open about this um, with technology and, and access of information. Whatever we teach you today in six months, it's going to be completely different. So you really have to work at knowing. Not knowing the answers, but knowing how to find the answers and knowing how to adapt to those changes. Um, but just always, you know, we, we very much change every day and, and getting out of the notion that the change is bad and that libraries changing is a bad thing. It can be, um, it can be and is a really good thing because we're, we're constantly changing to adapt to the community we're in, the culture we're in, um, the needs of people change every day. So we need to work on, you know, adapting to all of that. Right now we're looking at like STEM activities for kids and coding and the Ozobots and that's a whole new, you know, I didn't learn anything about that in library school and neither did anybody else usually that went, you know, that's a, a very new thing. So you take things like that and you say, okay, I'm going to learn about it and how can I use it to help the community and offer these things? So it's just very, very constant and very changing. And, you know, I, I always focus with staff on keeping an open mind about, you know, if, if you don't know something, that's okay. We're going to learn and we're going to see what we can do and see how it fits into our, our workflows. What path do you foresee libraries taking in the future to adapt with further cultural and technological changes? I know maybe you don't know exactly what the future is going <laughs> to hold, but yeah. do you think the future library is going to be able to adapt? Do you think it's a timeless thing? Timeless you thing. You know, I really, I, I firmly believe that it is a timeless thing. Um, and I think it's because with the, especially um, changes with technology, libraries have changed. And I think showing that we can change and are able to change and the positive impacts that that change has. Um, libraries are very much kind of evolving to what they once were back hundreds and hundreds of years ago before they had even print material. Their libraries were very much started as places in that people would go and, and conjugate and share ideas and learn. And that's really where 
where libraries started and you might have had one or two books in your little village, but people would, would come and read and, and share, not only reading, but just oral stories and sharing. And it dates back to that. And I think we're very much having a big focus on that, where we're the center of learning and growing and education in the community and we're known as places where people can go to learn and experience new things. And I think being able to make those changes, I think that's the reason libraries are still here. Um, I firmly believe that we we will be here for the future. And I, I don't know what that's going to look like, but that's okay. And we'll, we'll figure it out as we go. And the reason why we're going to be here is because librarians are so good about making those changes and adapting and and being okay with constantly looking at at new niches we can fill. Right now we're doing a lot of really unique things that libraries don't traditionally do. We just started last year with some libraries in Waukesha County doing memory cafes. So that's a group program that we run for people with dementia, Alzheimer's, and their caregivers. And it's a library program and it's also a support group and supporting them with resources. So that's something that libraries never thought of as needing to do. And that's a niche that we've been able to fill. So I think librarians are really good at finding those niches in the community and really targeting them and and using them as part of our core service and the reason why why we're here. Thank you, Trisha, for taking time and speaking to us. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Trisha. I really enjoyed learning about how libraries are adapting and offering so many community programs. Also really fascinating to watch how libraries are becoming what they once were when they originally started. To get more information about the programs your library is offering, please do a quick internet search. Find out now. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening and subscribing. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Or if you're on an iOS device, Check us out on Apple Podcasts. If you're on an Android device, please subscribe to Simply Complex in Google Podcasts. Thank you so much for your support. If you want more information on today's episode, please check out makeeverything.tv forward slash Simply Complex for the show notes. If you have any thoughts or suggestions on the podcasts so far, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is podcast at makeeverything.tv. And if you want to send us your thoughts snail mail style, our P.O. Box is How to Make Everything, P.O. Box 14104, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55114. Thanks again to Daniel, Trisha, and the team, and Studio 71 for making this possible. And before you go, Andy has a little sneak peek in what's coming up with How to Make Everything on YouTube. Uh, yeah, so speaking of like the Bronze Age when libraries were first invented, in their upcoming video, I'm going to uh, learn about Bronze Age casting and cast my own Bronze Age sword with the help of a really great swordcaster. He's called the Swordcasting Guy. See you next time.